Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. And here's Michael Hansom. Oh, my mom Finish will be series. so proud. My, my reviews this week, so. <laughs> That's all it takes. That's all it takes is a, a kind word. But hey, uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you. If, uh, again, if you're visiting, we're really glad you're here. And uh, good morning to those of you who have joined us uh, online. Uh, it's kind of crazy to think that we're almost through this Revelation uh, series in four weeks. I'm going to be wrapping it up as we gather together to, to celebrate Easter. And again, I want to restate, make sure to grab some of those invite cards. Uh, we, our hope is to pack this place out uh, on Easter weekend. But uh, the series that we're in uh, has, is entitled The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And in saying that, I think it's really important to remind us, something we said early on in this series, that one of the really important and helpful uh, ground rules uh, that's going to help us keep on track as we go through this challenging book of Revelation is that we, we really, the ground rule is we, we really need to honor the title of the, of the book. And the title of the book is, it's actually found in the first verse of Revelation. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, or the, the original word is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And remember, we talked about how an apocalypse is not a bad thing. We, we misuse that word a lot. Uh, it actually is a really good thing. It can be defined, a simple definition of apocalypse is the removal of the cover of a box, the opening of a door, or a window, or a pulling back of a curtain. So an apocalypse is a good thing, because it means that what has always been there has now been made uh, has now been made visible. And so another way we could state the title of this book is uh, the pulling back of the curtain to reveal Jesus Christ. That's the title of this book, and that tells us that the goal of Revelation is that we would see Jesus clearer. And uh, one of the cool things is I've been having lots of conversations with people as we've gone through this series is people have actually said those words. I feel like I'm seeing Jesus clearer. Is that, would you agree with that? Is that you? Please just put your hand up just because make, for our viewing audience. Look at all those hands. Look at all those hands, mom and dad. Aren't you proud? Are you, but no, but seriously, have you not seen a, a new or fresh perspective uh, on Jesus? That's, that is one of the primary goals of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is basically a drama, a play that God is putting on for John, who, you know, one of the original 12 disciples, and he's writing it down, uh, and he's writing it. He's in prison. This is a, a Roman prison island of, of Patmos. John was sent there because he would not submit to, he would not obey the orders of the emperor of Rome and orders that were really centered around the religion of Rome, if you will. It was called emperor worship, then emperor Domitian, uh, insecure uh, Caesar, if you will, he, he, in, in an attempt to, uh, to strengthen the loyalty of the people you know, uh, underneath him, he commanded people that, hey, you can uh, believe in whomever, whatever you want. You can worship whomever, whatever you want. You can, you can bow down to whomever, whatever you want, just as long as when you do that, you also take a little pinch of incense throw it on the burning altar and say the words by the power of gray skull. Oh, I thought that would be funny. I love that show. 
But the words were there, Kaiser Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. And to that order, John said, well, you know what, Caesar? Uh, uh, as a follower of Jesus, yes, I am to uh, respect the governing authorities. I am to pray for the governing authorities. I'm to pay my taxes, but worship? No, no, I will not. Uh, I will not worship you. His loyalty to Jesus as Lord would not allow him to worship Caesar as Lord. And so now from prison, John is writing to the seven churches uh, on the mainland, and he's basically writing them to encourage them to follow his uh, his example. And again, the goal of this letter is, to, that, is that we would see Jesus clearer. clearer. And one of the primary uh, aspects of, of seeing Jesus clearer is that we would see just the greatness and the never-endingness of the rule and reign of Jesus. I hope that's become clear as we've gone through this series, but John is talking about the rule. He's saying like the rule, the eternal rule of Jesus is so powerful, so much bigger than anything else that even if it costs you your life to stay loyal to Jesus, even if it costs you your life to not give in to the pressure of the culture, John basically says, no worries, no worries. Because with Jesus, with Jesus, death is not the end, but rather it's the doorway into the most beautiful uh, forever, also known as Narnia. And uh, so our text this weekend will bring us to the end of Act 4 of this five-act drama. In Act 3, we saw uh, seven seals opened, uh, seven trumpets blown. Beginning of Act 4, there were seven bulls poured out. And those three sevens basically were, were giving us three different perspectives on the same historical reality. And we're talking about the, the judgment of God, uh, the working out of God's just mercy and merciful just, justice on the world. And with the seventh bowl, his judgment ends. It says this in Revelation 16, 17, the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne. This is God speaking, saying, it is done. Uh, and then we have a scene change that is moving us quickly towards the end of Revelation. And this weekend, we're going to be covering uh, chapter 17 to the beginning of, of 19, and we'll touch down in different spots along the way. But for now, let's pray, and then we will jump into chapter 17. So Lord, uh, thanks again for another Sunday morning. Thanks for another opportunity to gather as a church family and I, I just, I find my mind goes back to these original churches who uh, lived at a crazy time. And we confess today, we too live at a crazy time. And uh, I pray that you would encourage us today. You would sober us just to the reality of the times that we live in. Uh, I, I pray that you would come close to each one. I pray for those gathered at home. Uh, would you fill uh, would you fill their space there with your presence? But just come have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the, it'll be up on the screens. We're going to be start with Revelation 17, verse 1. <clears throat> Here's what it says. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. 
Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. No doubt, that was quite astonishing. Now, that's kind of bizarre, isn't it? And I'm just sort of thinking if you're new to this series, you're like, this actually is the Bible. It's not the latest Stephen King uh, book that's out. It, but, but remember that one of the primary uh, literary genres of Revelation is apocalyptic uh, genre. And what that means is it's loaded with symbolism, like what we just read. It's loaded with imagery, like what we just read. And so when we look at that, a really good question after that section would be, okay, okay, so who, who is this woman or who does she represent? And who is this, this blasphemous beast that she is sitting on? Well, let's, let's start with the beast because we actually met this beast last weekend. Andrew, if you were here, Andrew introduced us to what uh, he called uh, the evil trinity. If you were here, do you remember that? And we're not talking about the holy trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the evil trinity, the dragon, the beast from the earth, and the beast from the sea. The dragon is, uh, represents the devil. The beast from the earth representing dragon manipulated religious and spiritual powers. And then the beast from the sea representing dragon manipulated political structures and powers. And if that makes absolutely no sense to you, I encourage you to listen to Andrew's talk from last weekend because he explained all that very well. So we're today uh, talking about the beast uh, is the one that came up from out of the, out of the sea. And notice that this woman <clears throat> is being carried. She's riding this beast. He's, she's being carried by this beast. And that's, that's symbolic. It means that this woman is drawing her authority, is drawing her influence, her strength from this beast that she is sitting on. And keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. But, but that's the beast, okay? That's, that's the beast in this picture. Uh, so then a good question would be, well, go, well then, well, who's this woman? And back in chapter 12, a couple of weeks ago, we met a woman, if you remember, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, had this, this majestic crown with, with 12 you know, stars in the crown. And this beautiful woman in chapter 12 represented, if you remember, the, the people of God from both before and after, after Jesus. Well, the woman today is not, is not that woman. Uh, the angel refers to this woman as a harlot as a prostitute. And in her hand, she does not hold a scepter, which would point to, you know, her being a, a royal of royal blood or royalty. Uh, in fact, what she holds is a cup. And this paints, paints quite a bleak picture. A cup that is filled with, with, with the unclean filth, all the abominations of her gross adulteries and immorality. And, and so hopefully you can see the, the pictures being painted. This is not someone you'd bring home to mom and dad. Uh, it's quite a bleak picture. And so we actually find out clearer who she is in verse five. It says, the name written <clears throat> on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, 
the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So who does she represent? Well, let me explain it this way. Well, primarily she, she represents the city of Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon, which, which in, you know, back way back in like five, four, late 400, five, or sorry, 600 to 500 BC, uh, uh, Babylon, the city was this was like the, one of the wonders of the world. Uh, but actually that Babylon fell in early 500 BC. It fell into ruin. So she is representing that city. But notice that it says uh, she's Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. So she doesn't just represent, represent the ancient city of Babylon. She also represents other cities of Babylon. Or another way to put that is she is the mother of more just like her. She is the mother of more Babylons that will follow in her footsteps after her. And to really drive home how evil she is, John writes that she is drunk. Uh, She's drunk, but not with wine. Again, this is quite graphic. She is drunk with the blood of God's holy people, which means she is celebrating, she's celebrating the pain, the persecution, the struggle of all those on earth, all those people who, are, who, are, who have stayed loyal to Jesus. And it's at this point, again, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, this really points to, when I talked a couple of weeks ago about the, the defeated dragon and his incredible rage and anger against God who he could not defeat. And so what we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago is that this dragon is now pouring that rage through people, right? Or in this case, through city or cities, over time onto the followers of Jesus. Is that making sense? Okay, okay, that's encouraging. Please pause the camera as we... <clears throat> okay, it'll, it'll, I'll, we'll talk more about that. So the people reading John's letter, <clears throat> you know, being introduced to this lady, sitting on the beast with seven heads, <clears throat> they would have been listening or they would have been reading and going, you know what? okay, I get that Babylon, but I think I know who he's talking about now in 96 AD, which city he's talking about. John, a little further on in in 17, plants some code in his letter. He says this in verse nine. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now that doesn't mean anything to us, but to the original readers, they would have gone, oh, Okay, so this city sits on seven hills. They would have thought, okay, I know exactly who you're talking about. You are talking about the majestic city of Rome, where in the first century, the city of Rome was actually built on seven hills. They would have, they would have totally made the connection. And remember I said that the woman was the mother of more Babylons. That means that she represents, or that what she represents has less to do with the actual city and more to do with the spiritual foundation of the city. And so Babylon represents many cities, many empires over history that are built on the same foundation. And so you have the original city of Babylon followed by more Babylons that that stand out in the Old Testament, like Nineveh, Tyre, Sidon, Assyria, Persia. We see this through history. Dayton, Ohio. Let's be honest. But, But no, and then on and on until at the time of John, where when he writes this, they're like, Rome now. Now we're talking about Rome. Rome represents a city, an empire, a nation that is built on the spiritual foundation of Babylon. So what do I mean by that? I keep saying this foundation of Babylon. Well, what is the foundation of Babylon? 
to answer that, we need to go back to the, to the root word, the root word of Babylon, which is Babel or Babel, right? And that probably stirs in some of your minds a story from the Old Testament. Back in Genesis 11, we find the story of the, it's commonly called the Tower of Babel, uh, where really, and it says at that time that on, on planet Earth, everyone spoke the same language, which is kind of hard to, that's like, well, that's okay. Well, it says it, so I believe it. But, but it's like everyone spoke the same language. And so there was this incredible sense of unity amongst humanity and amongst the people. And, and literally, one of the, they, were, they were gathering together to celebrate their unity. And the way that they were going to do that is they were going to build a city. And so Genesis eleven four says this. Then they said, come, let us build a city let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And if you're familiar with the story, God literally looks at this and he goes, this is not a good thing. And so he confuses their plans by giving different people different languages, and they do. They scatter around, around the earth and basically God shuts down this this building project of the city. The spiritual foundation then of Babel is basically, you know, as Sinatra would say, uh, we're going to do it our way. We are going to do this ourselves. We will make our own city, our own way, and we will rule and we will reign over it. I say spiritual foundation because at its core, Babel's foundation is a foundation that, it, that rejects. It is a rejection of God's ways and God's reign. So when John refers to Babylon, he's not referring to a particular city or nation, but rather to its foundation. Or another way to put it, Babylon is a code word for humanity seeking to build the city without God. Hopefully that's starting to make more sense. And to that, God would say, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing to build you know, a city or really to build a life on any foundation that is godless. That is not a good thing. In fact, uh, what, what the Bible teaches and what we see, especially in our passage today, that, that kind of foundation is a very destructive foundation. Uh, remember what I said? The woman was seated on the sea beast. She was drawing from him strength, you know, authority, influence. But so, so look where their relationship was heading. And I think this is a very graphic way to point to the future of any God-less foundation. Listen to what it says, verse 16. The beast and the 10 horns you saw will hate the prostitute. You get this sense that the beast has now turned on her. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Whoa, that is so graphic and so intense. And I think it is, besides other things, I think the, the intensity of this is to, that John, you know, God through John is driving home to the people, hey, understand, you need to understand how evil, how evil the dragon, the enemy is. You need to understand that, you know, that, uh, that there is no, nothing good in the heart of the dragon. There is nothing, there is no sense of care or concern for humanity in the heart of the dragon. The dragon only knows how to use. And he will promise lots of 
you know, lots of good things, lots of good times if you'll, if you'll give in to his ways. But remember, the dragon at the core is the liar of liars. And so he will, you know, he will make lots of promises, but in the end, he will not stay true to those promises. He will not keep up his end of the deal. And when he's done with you, he'll abandon you and leave you in the mess, really the mess of, of his making. Now, in order to understand the seriousness of what we're reading and really how the original readers, again, this, this letter was written to encourage these people. And you're like, that doesn't, I don't know if that's encouraging. But, well, I think it is. And, and so in order to see where that encouragement was and where the challenge was, as John is writing to these people who are living in a spiritual war zone, we need to skip ahead a little bit to chapter 21. Uh, our section this weekend, 17 to 19, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to sum up that section, I would say it's, it, it describes the woman uh, and, it, and it talks about the fact that even though she looks so good, so mighty, so prosperous, the truth is she is actually falling. She is actually rotting from the inside out. Her doom is imminent. But then in chapter 21, we're introduced to another woman who is not a harlot, but who is a bride. She's a bride. And she's also a city. And it's not the city of Babylon. It's actually the city called the New Jerusalem, the holy city. And, and what's really interesting is when you look at 17 to 19, it's not all the way through exactly word for word, but the literary structure of 17, 18, and 21 are almost identical. And we're supposed to see that. And we're supposed to look at them and we're supposed to compare them. So, so for instance, 17.1 says, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. 21.9, and one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. 17.1 continues saying, come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot. 21.9 saying, come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And again, it's not word for word, but as you go through those sections, it's just crazy how literally it's like God is saying, look at them, look at the harlot, look at the bride, look at Babylon, look you know, at the new Jerusalem, look at the foundation that is rotting from the inside out. Look at the foundation that will stand forever. Look at the one, look, you know, like there's two cities. Again, one's a harlot, one's a bride. One is the epitome of darkness and evil and, and death. The other is the, uh, the epitome of light and, you know, and, 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 and goodness and, and life. And he's, and he's wanting us to look at those and he's wanting us to see them for what they are because he's calling us to a choice, right? He's calling us to make a choice. And remember that like the core question of revelation is who are you gonna worship in this life? Who will you bow to? Who, and, 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 I, and I think this, again, this comparison is, it's held up that way because John, or I guess Jesus through John is challenging these churches who are in this intensity of the, you know, the, the, the currents that are pulling them in different direction. He's saying, you guys, you need to make a choice. You can't just sort of ride the fence. You need to make a choice. Is it Babylon or is it the new Jerusalem? Is it, you know, which city do you want to live in? 
Which city do you want to be? Which culture do you want to follow? Which city do you want to give your life to? Which foundation do you want to build your life on? And to help us make that decision, you know, the text tells us what the future holds, like to really drive home what the future holds for Babylon, and in this case, Rome and her destruction. In 96 AD, when John wrote Revelation, uh, and really where he, he, he wrote the unseen reality of both the present and the future. And what I mean is, uh, what was revealed to John was the unseen reality was that Rome in the present was falling. And the unseen reality of the future was that Rome was going to fall. And we all go, yeah, <clears throat> we know the history. But they didn't know that. And in 96 AD, they would have read that and they would have thought, uh, I don't think that's possible. Have you looked at Rome lately? That, you know, have you looked at New York? Have you looked at Paris? Have you like, <clears throat> have you looked at the great city of Rome lately? There's no way. There's no way a city, such a majestic city would fall. They actually called Rome. It was known as the eternal city. Nothing. I think, right, random thought, Titanic. Even God couldn't sink this ship. You remember that? Okay. Okay. We'll edit that, Jonathan. I probably should stick with my notes. But listen to this quote. Rome was at the height of her powers. There was no serious threat to her frontiers, nor any sign of major uprising from her own subject peoples. Pirates had been cleared from the seas and brigands, robbers from the countryside. Excuse me. Elegant cities dotted the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. All of that to say, in 96 AD, when John wrote this down, they were the glory days of Rome. And the people are like, there's no way, there's no way looking at the majesty of this city, there's no way a city like that could ever fall. Or another way to put that would be, there's no way Blockbuster will ever go out of business. <laughs> or, or Sears and Kmart, I know they're still around, but they're forever. That's a shocker to me, Sears. Or what I, you know what, when I get older, you know what kind of car I'm going to get? I'm going to get an Oldsmobile. That was hard. I always wanted to get an Oldsmobile. I guess you still could, but they don't make them anymore, which is so bizarre. But Rome, as powerful and as great as it was, it did fall. And it fell really quickly. In 410 AD, it said that Alaric and his Goths, like they, they pillaged the city in less than a week. And in chapter 18, we see the, you know, the people who were caught up who were in awe of Rome, we see their shock. We see the shock of those who loved Rome and all she stood for. All those who'd been made rich, you know, by her commerce and resources. All those who'd been entertained by her uh, at the cost of others, mind you, in her brothels and in the Colosseums, the gladiators, all these things. And in chapter 18, verses 9 to 19, we basically see the same three responses from three different groups who are, who are grieving Rome. And the, we're talking about the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and every sea captain. And basically, they all three say the same thing in response to Rome's fall. They say this, woe, woe to you, great city. In one hour, your doom has come. And again, one hour, is, it's, it's, it's a symbol. It means how quickly, how quickly Rome has fallen. And how was that possible? Well, it was possible because it was rotten from the inside out. 
It was possible because of the foundation, the godless foundation that it was built upon. And so, you know, John is writing this letter, this pastoral letter to followers of Jesus who at this time in 96 AD lived in cities, cities that had really been taken over by Babylonness, right? And just like, just like us today, living at a time where you more increasingly you see the spirit or that foundation of Babylon that rejects God. It's rejecting of the ways of God and the rule of God. And so he's writing to encourage them to stand strong in Jesus in those cities. And again, he's showing them the unseen reality of the present and the future. And basically what he's saying is that the ways of humanity, the ways of any individual any city, any nation, any government, any people group who is, you know, who is doing it on their own, who, is, who, have, who, are, who are building a city, building their lives on something apart from God, choosing their own way, the unseen reality is no matter how powerful or in control they may look, just like Rome, the truth is they are crumbling and will one day fall. And I wonder, and I this may be an overly simple way to put it, but I, I sometimes wonder if, let me ask the question this way. If you, if you are more impressed by the things of man than you are by the things of God, I, that could be a potential problem. That could be a potential indicator of what you're building your life on. And I, and I'm trying to think of a, a clearer way to put that, but but if you would honestly say, I don't really have any awe of God. Like, like it's not, like I am in awe of lots of things on the world. I, I think cars are so cool. I love looking at cars and, you know, uh, that's why I drive a Scion. I'm really into cars. But, but, but in comparison to God, if cars cease to exist, I couldn't care less. Because I'm so in awe of him. And, and it's, you know, I remember an old Keith Green lyric where he said, like a moth to a flame whenever I hear your name. And I think John is saying to them and he's saying to us, he's saying, you guys don't realize how strong the current of your culture is. You don't realize how slippery that slope is. And so he's, he's really trying to drive home to them the need, the need that they have to choose. They have to be really uh, sober in the decisions that they make in this life. And so, so he gives them this advice. He, John gives the followers of Jesus who are living each day under this pressure to give into the spirit of Babylon. This is what he says in 18 verse four. He says, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. And to that I go, so that's your advice, John? Come out of her? Because uh, I don't know if that's very helpful because where do you suggest we go then, John? Because uh, I remember what you taught us a while back. You said that this defeated dragon was thrown out of heaven and was cast down to earth where he has limited time, but he's using whatever resources he has, has left, whatever levels of power he has left to resist the ways of God. So, so where do we go? Where do we go on planet earth to escape 
her influence. And one of the things, uh, uh, God doesn't seem to be interested in my opinion, but I said, I think it's kind of risky, God. Uh, and one of the things about the Christian faith that I think is risky is that when someone says yes to Jesus, when someone takes a step of belief towards Jesus, if I was God, I would treat it like a fish. They nibble on that hook, I am yanking them up to heaven. I'm getting them out, like, we got one. Let's get him out of there before he changes his mind, you know, or before he starts reading Harry Potter. Or like, like let's, let's, get him, let's get him out of there. But, but that is so risky to me because God's like, you say yes to him, you're going to follow him, but then he leaves us here. He leaves us here on earth to continue now living our lives, trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of an incredibly you know, uh, Im- incredibly impressive, incredibly uh, uh, powerful, provocative, tempting, shiny world that is filled with the spirit of Babylon. And so when Jesus said through John, come out of her, my people, he didn't mean like go, in, you know, go into the rural woods and build a, a Christian compound. What he meant was step out of the current of the world you live in and let me teach you how to swim against that current. Stop building your life on the crumbling foundation of Babylon and start building it on the forever foundation, the solid rock of my foundation. Let me do a work in you so that in this fallen, lost world, you'll now shine as an ambassador of Jesus. That you'll, as you stumble through your faith, you'll actually be, you'll, you'll live this life like a beacon of hope a beacon of light to people that there is a better way. There is a better way to live this life. I don't know who said this quote, but I've always loved this quote. The church is an outpost of heaven in a world of death. And it's sort of that, you know, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, which is really easy to say, but really hard to do. And so let me end with this. Why don't we have the band come on back? Um, and again, I don't have time to go into all of this, but, but uh, I think it really does come down to, in the little things and the big things, it's, it's making that choice. It's, it's asking God, Lord, would you show me what's your foundation, what's not your foundation? Would you show me where I'm not building on you and where I'm building on something that is just crumbling and rotting? Uh, from the inside out. And, and so I think there's a choosing of, our, of which foundation we're going to build on. And so how do I know, how do I know if I am actually building my life on the foundation of God? And, and this is where I am over, over quickly going through something. But in Matthew 5, 7, if you haven't read Matthew 5 through 7 in a while, I'd encourage you to read it again. It's the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's where Jesus really when we talk about foundations, he paints a very clear picture. You want to know what my foundation looks like? Here's what it is. You go through the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty clear. It's pretty practical about our attitude towards God, towards others, towards life, towards money, towards time, towards all the stuff of life. And it's so interesting, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it really fits in well with this challenge of, of John to them then and to us today, Jesus really challenges the people about their decision of, of what foundation. And, I, and I'm going to read this section. It's Matthew 7, 24. I'm going to read it from the message, which is more modern day language. Listen to this. These words I speak to you are not identical addition. Sorry, 
Sorry, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. Homeowner improvements to your standard of living, they are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, or tornado hit, but nothing moved the house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. Now, I'm not saying to anyone in this room or online that you're stupid. And I'm like, come on, Eugene. Why didn't you say silly? <laughs> that just sounds like, but you know what I think? I think what I want you to hear is not condemnation, but just the invitation to us today that we are called to be the people of God. And the people of God are meant to live their lives, to build their lives on a foundation very different from this world. And if we are going to shine, if we are going to be that beacon of hope and light to the world, it is so, so, so important that we are building our lives on his foundation. So why don't we stand up? We're going to go back into worship. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.